Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. To you. If we haven't met, my name's Arnaldo. I'm the lead pastor here at Anchor Southwest, and um, I just want to give you a quick recap of where we've been. Uh, last week, we took a tour through the largest section of the book of Job, chapters 3 to 37, and 3 to 37 is these, uh, these cycles of his friends and Job going back and forth ad nauseum, uh, trying to uh, answer for his deep anguish and distress. And we looked at some things last week that we wouldn't say, that we shouldn't say as soon as we encounter suffering in another. Uh, and some things that we need to, to do and to be if we hope to be a people who can provide comfort to others in their pain. And this week, we're going to focus on Job's defense. What's going to be his retort, uh, his final retort to his friends. Uh, now, uh, Job has about 20 chapters. He covers his speech in, in the 40s chapters of the book of Job. Uh, Job covers about 20 chapters. And, and the whole point of the back and the forth, the back and the forth with, uh, with Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, and a little bit later on, Elihu, it's meant to tire us out. Uh, that's the whole point of the fact that it's so incredibly repetitive. It's meant to tire us out. The point being that human wisdom can only get us thus far before it exhausts itself in the face of the mystery of evil and suffering. And this week we're going to ask the question, well, how does does Job respond to his suffering? And then how should we respond to our suffering? Uh, But before I do that, help me to pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for enough health and enough energy to be here this morning, Lord. And I ask, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would be um, uh, making your presence felt here. You you are here. We're not inviting you into this space, uh, but we do ask that you would help us to be aware of your work in this space, that you would wake us up to what you are already doing and what you are inviting us into. Uh, and so we, we ask, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move folks from, from death to life this morning, that, that those who may be far from you would come near by your precious word. Help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people and uh, help me to remember the things that will be. And more than anything, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, and the church said, Last school holidays were really emotionally charged for me. I thought Anthony was going to be with his mom and not be in the room while I say these things because uh, uh, Catherine is teaching kids, so I'm sorry, Anthony. But uh, our eldest, he turned 14 uh, over the school holidays, and it's, it sent me into a bit of a tailspin. Right? And so we've begun the process of letting him go. It's been really painful for me. I thought I was more ready, uh, but it's a really exciting process for him. Uh, but again, a really difficult one for me. And there's some shifts in the house uh, as to how we communicate with him and how we allow him to communicate with us, right? And what are reasonable expectations for the way that we speak to each other respectfully. And you know, one of the conversations that Catherine and I have been having for a couple years now is how much um, do we let him talk back, right? H- how much do we let him give us something back? How much do we let him argue his case to us? Right? Which translates, right? Like how much talk back will, are we willing to tolerate in the house? 
Because we know uh, that as we move from the, uh, like the necessary move from the, the position of authority to the position of influence in his life, uh, we know that it's going to be healthy for him to begin to make his own choices and to be able to argue the fact, right? And to be able to, uh, you know, kind of stand up to mom and dad where he feels there's an injustice. How much protest is good for him? This isn't too dissimilar to the dynamic that we have with God our Father, uh, uh, because um, how we answer this next question that I'm going to ask is dependent largely on these two things, right? Your own relationship with your father as you grew up or, and the tradition of Christianity that you are most familiar with. And this is the question. How much talkback is God willing to tolerate from us? H- how much? And depending on how you grew up with your dad or what kind of uh, version of Christianity you grew up with is going to answer that question. How much talk back is God willing to tolerate? Is protest even something we're allowed when it comes to God, right? The Almighty, the one who sits on high, the one who shares his glory with no one, the one who dwells in unapproachable lights. Or is it a matter of just sucking it up and going with the flow? Particularly during our dark nights of the soul, our suffering, our pain, our our turmoil, how should we respond to God? And what I want to do today, I want to show you how Job responds to God in his suffering, how he talks back, and uh, what we need in order uh, to respond well in our suffering, how we should talk back. Now, if you remember, again, from last week, we looked at the, the structure of chapters 33 30, to 37, where we noticed there are these three cycles where uh, back and forth, back and forth, Job responds, his, his friends uh, uh, insult him, they, they, they say things like, uh, your kids got what they deserved, Right? Uh, You got what you deserve. There's some kind of sin that is hidden in your life. And all up, remember, uh, Job takes 20 chapters of speech, and we're going to be focusing on just one today, particularly chapter 31. But chapter 28 is a song that exalts wisdom, and it exalts God's wisdom. It it exalts God as all-wise, and it feels like it shouldn't be in the book. Because when you're reading, when you're reading the, the anguish that Job is, is in and, and the protest that he has against God, uh, this chapter is particularly lucid. It's cl- he's thinking clearly here. In fact, it's the most clearly that he thinks in all the book. It seems a little out of place given where he's at. But if you've known deep suffering, if you've known deep turmoil, you know that there are moments, even in the midst of the chaos, where you're lucid for even for a moment. And you, you, you can think you can think straight for a moment, and it feels like as a storm is passing over you, you're now in the eye of the storm where, where things calm a little, and in a moment, you're thrown right back into the chaos. You're thrown right back into the pit of despair. Sufferers, if you've been around sufferers or if you've been one, you know there are deep ups and downs. You can experience some momentary calm in the midst of your emotional storm, only again to be thrown right back in to the pit of despair. And then that's chapter 28. Chapter 29, Job resumes his regularly scheduled program. He speaks about how good he had it in the past. And then chapter 30 speaks about how bad he has it now. And particularly moving in chapter 30, uh, Job uh, um, uh, speaks as if God robbed him, right? This is what he says in chapter 30, verse 16. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. 
The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like a collar of my tunic. God, God has cast me into the mire. It's as if God has taken him by the collar and thrown him into a pit of mud. He is saying, I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. Who's felt like that before? I stand, and you only look at me. Right? It's, almost, it's, almost, it's almost better if, God, if Job somehow could get to the point where God doesn't exist, because this is even worse. God, God is looking at, he's saying, I, I can, have you ever felt the uncomfortableness of someone just looking at you? And he's saying, God, you're, just, you're looking at me and you're doing nothing. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. The pain is keeping Job up at night. His bones hurt. It feels like God is robbing him. He feels wronged by God personally. He cries out and nothing. And worse than nothing, God sees, is just standing by, and it feels like God is persecuting Job. In chapter 31, Job is going to throw up his hands, and he's going to give his final plea. He's going to, he, this, is, this is the one last crack that Job is going to, to give to state his case, his defense, his protest. And this is his protest. His protest is that he is righteous, that he is innocent, that he does not deserve what is happening to him, what has happened to his family, what is happening to his body. Because remember, Job also believes in this idea of retribution, right? That, that God runs the world on tit for tat, that what you put in is what you get out, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And you too have asked, I have asked, we've all asked, why me? Why this? Why now? But haven't I been good? And, and maybe you're not uh, uh, brave enough to, to, to sort of admit that to someone else, but I'm going to ask you right now, this morning, to be brave enough to admit it to yourself that at some point or another, you've asked the question, why is this happening to me? Haven't I been good? Asaph in, uh, uh, in the Psalm, Psalm 73, he'll say this, he'll say, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Jump down to, to verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. So if we look at the wicked, remember, the wicked are supposed to get wicked things. They're, they're supposed to be the ones getting the short end of the stick. But these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain. Listen to this. Listen to verse 13, because this is the key. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All in vain for nothing. I follow Jesus for nothing, right? Because look at what I'm getting pain, suffering. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Who, who hasn't been there? But I've been good. 
I've followed you. I've counted the cost and I have found that Jesus is worth following. So why is this happening to me? Why am I sick? Why am I broke? Why, am I, why is my mental health deteriorating? Why am I having relational stress? Why am I still single? Why did I marry that person? Why did I get cancer? Why do I constantly struggle with autoimmune diseases? Why, why, why? If I have been good, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? We ask. And we all live with this latent idea sitting dormant in the back of our minds that good people should get good things and bad people should get bad things. That's just how we operate. And just like Job and his friends, he's, you know, Job's going to make the logical deduction. He's going to say uh, uh, that if I'm getting, like his friends will tell him, if you're getting bad, you must be bad. And Job is pulling out his hair saying, but I have been good. Chapter 31 is his final and closing statements. This, this turns into a bit of a courtroom scene. He's about to send God a summons. He, he's, he's about to call God to account. He, he's, he's going to send a lawyer, and he's, he's going to say, hey, God, you have to come to court. You will have to give an account to me. And he gives six pieces of evidence. He, he submits six pieces of evidence to the courtroom uh, to prove his innocence. The first piece of evidence that Job presents is that he's been sexually pure in heart. This is what he says in chapter 31. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity, listen to the idea, is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does, does not he see my ways and number all my steps? I've been sexually pure. I don't deserve this. The second piece of evidence entered into the record is the fact that he's not only remained sexually pure in heart, but in practice, especially against, against another man's wife. He says, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door and over and over again, he'll, he'll give this e these if statements. If this has happened, then I deserve what I get. If that has happened, then I deserve what I get. He continues, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her for that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, this, this place of the dead, this underworld, and it would burn to the root all my increase. And so not only has Job uh, 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 been uh, uh, pure in his thoughts sexually, but also in his practice his third submission into evidence is the fact that he has treated all of his staff well, with respect, and if there's ever been a complaint against him, he has been just and fair. He says in verse 13, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up, when he makes inquiry? What shall I answer him? They don't need an HR rep in the room. Their boss is fair. He is equitable. He is generous. So Job has been sexually pure inside and out. He's treated his workers fairly. But not only that, he says this in verse 16, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as with a father. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. 
If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall off from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. So sexually pure, treated his staff well, equitable, fair, generous. But not only that, he's treated the the, the widow with care. He's treated the orphan with care, the needy with care. The fifth piece of of evidence uh, entered into the court is the fact that he hasn't put his trust in money. He'll go on to say, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much. He held, he held his riches loosely. He didn't give his heart to his money. And in fact, if there's an approximate value to what Job, like Job, Job's estimate approximate value is about a, a quarter of a billion dollars. When you tally up all of his uh, produce and, 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 and sheep and, and, and the land that they would need, the houses that all his kids had, he'd be worth about three trips to the shops today, right? Like, it's, he, he is worth a lot of money, $250 million. Still, still, with, with all those zeros and all those commas in the bank account, he still didn't trust in his wealth. And the sixth and final piece of evidence submitted into the courtroom is this, if I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exalted when evil overtook him. I've not been a sore winner. I have, I have been generous even to my enemies. I have not rubbed it in their face. And so all up, I've treated women fairly and purely. I've treated my staff fairly and equitably. I've treated the vulnerable generously. I've not let my heart be enticed by riches or false worship. And I've not treated my enemy poorly. Point being, I've been good. And so he throws his hands up and he says this in verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. And th- I mean, th- this, is, this, is, this is Job like getting in God's face. Here is my signature. Let the almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Mm. Preach, Job. He's, he's tough here. This is Job's defense. This is his response to his anguish, to get answers and to set God straight. Now, I want to remind you of something, that scripture is full of of both prescriptive elements and descriptive elements. Descriptive parts of scripture uh, simply tell the story as it happened, and it isn't necessarily telling us how we should, uh, what we should mimic. There's tons of things that happen in scripture, trust me, that you should not do. Prescriptive parts of scripture do tell us what to do. And even while we can garner insights from Job, like the fact that he is free to speak to God, I'm not sure this is the way to go. Because even when, when we enter into the furnace of our affliction, even if you, you had laurels to stand on, even if you could look at your own behavior, which I know that you can't because I know you because you're a human being, this is not the way to go. When we are in the furnace of affliction, we're not to take up the case that we don't deserve our suffering because we're somehow good. 
Right? We, don't, we don't argue on that basis because that's not the way the world works. Remember, the book of Job exposes this idea as insufficient, which says that God runs the world in a tit-for-tat fashion. It dismantles the idea that good people get good and bad people get bad. So that is not the way that we should argue the case. And so what do we do, right? Like, what, 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 what wisdom does Job have for us? What wisdom do the scriptures have for us? How do we walk? And this is such a, a real question for us. I'm going I'm to constantly go back to this, that in the early church, one of the reasons why they exploded was because they were able to suffer well. That was one of the major reasons why the church continued to grow, because they showed that Jesus was enough when they had nothing else. This is the basic question. How do we walk through the furnace of suffering without suffering destroying us? This is one of the most important questions that we have to reckon with period. Because suffering can destroy you. It's not automatic, right? Suffering doesn't just make you good automatically. We can't choose whether we will suffer or not, but we can choose how we walk through suffering. That's in our hands. That's a real choice that we have. Last week, we covered some of what we need to be and say in order to come near to those who are suffering. We need to embrace, right, the, the uncomfortableness of silence. We need to embrace uh, 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 suffering in the light of the love and the sovereignty of God, and we need to suffer ourselves. And this week, this is what we're going to focus on. How do we suffer well? This is, this is the question I, I want us to think through. How do we walk through the furnace of suffering without it destroying us? That's the question. Now, I want to say this first that what I'm about to say is meant to prepare us. Some of you may be right now in the furnace of affliction. This is not what I would tell you uh, first off the bat, okay? We spoke last week about what to do as we come alongside someone who is in the midst of their furnace. I wouldn't give a lecture or a sermon to you uh, with what I'm about to say. This is meant to prepare us for suffering. These are truths that will have the necessary, they will give us the necessary substructure present in our lives so that when suffering comes, you won't crumble. I, I, I want to be a part of a people that when suffering comes, who knows where the world will be? 5, 10, 15, 20. I don't know. I don't know what's going to come into your life. But what I'm passionate about as your pastor is to see you, even in the midst of your suffering, thrive, survive, give glory to God. And it's all about preparation. In the same way that a restaurant opens up well before service happens. Why? Because uh, you got to cut up the onions, right? You got to prepare. Preparation is key. I absolutely love cooking. I'm not good at it, but I love doing it. And what I've learned over the years is that preparation is key. You have to have everything ready if you're going to present something beautiful. In the same way, if you're going to present your life as beautiful, we must prepare. Tim Keller wisely notes this. He says, preparation, if it is to be effective, should happen before we are actually experiencing the searing pain. 
Most of the central truths and themes of biblical theology can serve as very powerful comforts and resources to sufferers. But the more deeply you know and grasp those teachings before the adversity comes, the more comfort they will be. Once you are in crisis, there's no time to sit down to give substantive study and attention to parts of the Bible. A great deal of preparation for suffering is simple but crucial. It means developing a deep enough knowledge of the Bible and a strong and vital enough prayer life that you will neither be surprised nor by, you will not be surprised by nor overthrown by affliction. We must prepare well. We must store up in times of plenty when things are good so that when things, when times are lean, we won't starve our souls to death when suffering comes. And we'll need at least three things, three words that I want to give you. One is gospel, gymnasium, and glory. The first one is gospel. Gospel, we need a new story to go by. If we're going to walk through the furnace of affliction well, we need a new story, a story that the gospel provides. Now, I don't have time to argue the fact that we must understand everything in terms of story. We are narrated creatures. We have to understand everything in the context of a framework, of a narrative, of a story. We can only make sense of anything as we place it within the context of a larger narrative. Now, of course, we're living in the wake of a time that doesn't like larger narratives, a, a, a story that stands above all the stories, a truth that makes sense of everything else. But nevertheless, even in our modern, progressive, Western culture, we still can only make sense of things within a framework, uh, within a plot. And so, as progressive Westerners, what is the story that we have adopted implicitly from our culture? And it's this. Primarily, our lives are about our own happiness. Imagine how crazy you would sound at the next family dinner if you, if you challenged the idea that life was about happiness. What does Johnny want to be when he grows up? I don't know, as long as he's happy. Oh, so so-and-so is getting married. How's that going? Well, as long as they're happy. Who hasn't said that? Who hasn't received that? As long as you're happy. And in a world which is geared almost exclusively to make us happy. Now listen, I'm not anti-happiness. I'm pro-happy. But in a world that is solely, solely about finding happiness on this side of eternity, what purpose does suffering accomplish? Nothing. In, in our worldview of the, of the Western progressive mindset, suffering serves no purpose. And so the only thing we can do with suffering is we can minimize it, or we can distract ourselves to death, or we can deny it, which only makes things worse. I want to affirm the impulse, though, in our culture to get rid of suffering, right? That, that's a good impulse. You're, they're showing their cards there, but it's a good impulse. But besides distracting ourselves to death or denying it all together, our modern culture does not provide us any kind of resource that will really deal with evil and suffering. But the gospel, on the other hand, the gospel is what God in Christ has done in history to defeat Satan's sin and death and thereby bringing the renewal of the world. The gospel restores our suffering because at the very center of the gospel stands a suffering God. 
The gospel tells a truer and better story that even our suffering will not go to waste. And the gospel itself establishes itself through suffering. Evil, an insidious reality that is designed to destroy in the hands of God. This, is, this blows my mind. Brings the salvation of the world. Like, eat, like the, 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 the very thing that was meant to destroy is actually in the hands of God used to bring new life. Imagine that. And so rather than seeing suffering as only an interruption that blocks the way toward a blessed future, it now becomes a pathway toward it. And how frustrating must the devil be? How frustrating must it be for the enemy, for the adversary? How frustrating must it be that he's trying so hard to destroy your faith through suffering and all it's going to do is actually bring you closer to Jesus? That's frustrating. The very thing that is meant to block the way is now the very thing that paves the road. That's wild. Like, that's some judo. Like, that's crazy what God does. Like, he uses the very thing. Like, he, he turns it on itself. It's wild. But this is only true if Jesus is who he said he is, that the scriptures testify truthfully to what he has done. In a word, it can only be true because of the gospel. And so if we're going to suffer well, the very first thing we need, the very first uh, sort of framework that we need is, is a new story. It's how the gospel transforms suffering from an irredeemable interruption to a servant of your sanctification. It has to move. It, it, you, you have to think of suffering in a different way if it's going to serve you. It's not just an irredeemable interruption to your life. It now becomes a servant of your sanctification. And that can only happen when we see suffering as a sort of a, a gymnasium. Right? It's, 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 a, it's a new place. It's, it's, it's a place where we go to shed our weaknesses and get swole. Right? We need to get spiritually swole. We need to get spiritually jacked if we're going to make it through affliction when it comes. The book of Hebrews was a sermon uh, that was uh, uh, written down uh, to suffering Christians, in encouraging them to persevere. In it, the preacher, he speaks to the reality that trials and tribulations, they are painful. But he says this, later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness. That is so lost in us. That suffering, your suffering, right now, if you're a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're suffering is producing a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are being trained by it. And that word trained, uh, gymnazo, right? That's where we get the word gymnasium from. And literally, it means to be stripped naked and to exercise naked, to train. That's what they used to do. Weird, right? That's not, I'm not, this is what I'm saying. We can't just do what all scripture says, right? You would undergo a regimen of exercises deliberately designed to strengthen your body where it was weak and further strengthen the, the parts uh, that aren't. And, and, and you add clothing, some very expensive clothing at that, and this is exactly why people go to the gym today, is it not? This is why people go to the gym. This is why people get into sport. This is why people get personal trainers. Because even if they don't go in naked, they do have to take off their regular clothes and put on gym clothes, right? So you go to Lorna Jane, overpriced, but you go to Lorna Jane, you go to Nike or whatever, you get your gym clothes on and you go to the gym. You can't take, I mean, you can if you wanted to, you can take a spin class in a three-piece suit, but you shouldn't. You have to take off your clothes, put on new clothes on in order to train. But this is what the gym also does. 
It accentuates what's already, this is what, and what gym clothes does. It accentuates what's already there, what you've worked on and what still needs to be worked on. Gym clothes kinds of, it, it, it exposes you just like the gymnasium does. And what, what suffering does, it exposes you. It accentuates where we're weak. It can also accentuate where we are strong. When life is going well, it's like wearing normal clothes. You can hide stuff. I can hide stuff while I'm up here, right? But let me wear like spandex biker shorts. You're gonna find another church, right? You should find another church, right? It, you're exposed. You, you, you show yourself to the world. And, and this is what suffering does. And we can only fix, we can only work on what we become aware of. And when the gospel turns suffering from an irredeemable interruption into the place where you now get to strengthen your spiritual muscles, we're able to now partner with God in the redemption of our suffering rather than wasting it. In the gymnasium of suffering, it's where we're tested. It's a place of danger, and the gym can either make us or break us. In the gym is where we are trained to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith who has walked himself through the furnace of affliction, the one who endured the cross and its shame, the one who uh, 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 suffered so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. And the process is this. The process is one of looking and doing. And we need both. While we're in the gym, we look and do. The book of Hebrews already encourages us to look to Jesus. And the purpose of looking to Jesus is to emulate Jesus, to do what Jesus had done, namely endure. It's like this. I've recently been following a lot of basketball Instagram pages, right? Like tons. And some workout ones as well, right? So on my for you page, you'll find these things, uh, preaching clips, sneakers, and basketball clips. Like, that's what it is. Love me or hate me. There's no shame in my game. That's what's on there. But it's super interesting. I've watched hours and hours and hours of people doing workout routines and, and basketball uh, uh, sort of training. I've not gotten a six-pack yet, right? Like, I'm waiting, right? I'm waiting as I scroll through Instagram. Like, man, this guy is swamming. He's doing jumping jacks and this and that. He's running over this. He's jumping this high. Why can't I do it? It's not enough to just look. We must do. The only way I'm going to get better is by doing. I can watch clips for another 10,000 years and keep my dad bod. It's not going to translate into me becoming a better player by looking at people play. I need to do the sit-ups myself. In the same way, I can't just get fit and healthy by just going to the gym and being in the gym. I have to work. You have to put in the work to grow. And in the same way, when we find ourselves in the gymnasium of affliction, we got to put in the work if we're going to see results. We look to Jesus, but we do what he did in the furnace of his own affliction, and that's the new process. Rather than deny, we never see Jesus denying his pain. We never see Jesus minimizing his pain. We never see Jesus distracting or numbing himself from his pain. Those are the only options that our culture gives us, by the way. 
When we're faced with suffering, we put in the work to become fully aware of our pain in the presence of God. And just that's the key. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were in the furnace, there was someone else in the fire. There was another one in the gymnasium walking with you and teaching you. And this is what Jesus teaches you in the furnace. I want to say two things. Suffering and love are not incompatible realities. You, you have to settle with this. That suffering and love are not incompatible realities. Paul and Silas did not wait for their external circumstances to change in order to pray and sing hymns to God in the middle of that jail cell. Imagine yourself, imagine giving yourself so fully to the love of God, you believed it and you acted in accordance to it, that no matter what comes, hell or high water, you know you are safe and you are loved. Imagine that. By the way, that is all I ever want for you, is that come hell or high water, you would know that you are loved by God. That's it. Imagine receiving the most devastating news, and I'm not talking about denying emotions or stuffing them down, but, but feeling fully those emotions and in the midst of the greatest heartache, you can proclaim God is Horatio Spafford was an attorney and a real estate investor and quite a successful one at that. And during the Chicago fires of 1871, he lost much of his fortune, if not all of his fortune. And around the same time, his four-year-old son dies of scarlet fever. Like imagine the pain of that. Soon after, he was thinking that a vacation across the pond would do them well. So he sends his wife and his four daughters on a boat, uh, on a ship across to England, planning to meet them soon after finishing up some business and a tragic accident. 200 people on that ship die, including his four daughters. He receives a telegram from his wife from the other side of the Atlantic, which read, saved alone, what shall I do? Can you imagine that? So he sets sail immediately to meet his grieved wife, Anna. The captain notes while they're on the, crossing the Atlantic, the captain notes this is around where the accident happened. And it's at that point that Horatio writes the following words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to know. It is well, it is well with my soul. Unthinkable, is it not? Unthinkable. Unthinkable. Who could do that? And Horatio wasn't special, but he had a firm belief, a knowledge that suffering and God's love is not incompatible. Praising God and suffering are not incompatible. In fact, the same way that suffering can clarify what we love, suffering will magnify what we praise. This is what seeing suffering as a gymnasium rather than an interruption to your plans can do. It can shape us into a more beautiful people rather than deteriorate our faith. But one thing is true, and it will never, listen, the one thing is true, suffering will never leave you the same. It will leave you a far better person or a far worse person than you were before. And so, 
We, become, we can become beautiful souls by looking at Jesus and doing what Jesus did, allowing ourselves to be loved and praising God in the furnace. And finally, we can prepare to suffer well when we understand that there is a new purpose to our suffering, and that is glory. Well, speaking before, as we prepared that, that um, in our effort, in, our, in, our, in a real and a good, honest effort to not uh, place Band-Aids or, you know, onto people's suffering by quoting Romans 8, 28, all things work for good, right? Like, too quickly, right? I get that. But we've gone so far the other way that we've forgotten the central truth, that your suffering is not wasted, that your suffering, this is what Scripture says, that your suffering is preparing for you glory, we, 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 do we believe that? While, we have, while suffering has the potential to make us a hard and brittle and loveless people, it has the equal potential to make us soft and strong and gracious. Because with Paul, we believe that our suffering, every tear, every question, every doubt, every betrayal, every hard thing in our lives, listen, listen, every hard thing in your life will become untrue. Everything sad will come untrue. Everything bad will be turned in on itself. All of the evil in your life that you've seen up to this point and that you will see is preparing for you something beautiful. In Paul's words, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe what the word says? That your suffering is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. The gospel makes what feels forever momentary. The gospel makes what feels so heavy right now for you light. Does it rattle in your bones, this truth? Does it reverberate in your soul? Do you love this truth? That even your suffering will turn for your good. All twisted things God will take and redeem. I don't know how. I know for sure we won't see the whole picture on this side of eternity. But all things will end up working for our good, even our, and maybe especially, our suffering. He continues, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are, are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This tent, our tent, the tent of our life groans. It is burdened. But one day we won't take off flesh. 
We won't take off this tent. He says, we're not going to just take off the tent. We're going to be clothed in immortality. We're going to be clothed in glory. Listen, that at the very moment when immortal clothes the mortal, at the very moment where you see Jesus and you meet him in the clouds and you come back down with him to wage war by his blood and eradicate evil for good, your pain, your suffering, light, momentary. That's what the gospel does. How do we suffer well? I'm almost done here. I'm going to invite the band up. How do we suffer well? Because if I don't invite them up, I'm going to be, I'll stay up here. How do we suffer well? The gospel re-narrates our pain. It presses us into the suffering God. The gymnasium trains you to look to Jesus, to do what he did in his furnace of affliction. And suffering prepares for you a glory that you right now cannot even imagine. Tabidi Unwable will say this. God is sufficient with our suffering as he is with his son's blood. Your suffering, Christian, if you're a Christian here today, your suffering is your slave. Your suffering is working for you to produce an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the next time suffering comes into your room, say, welcome, my slave, produce for me the glory that God has designed. We need this truth if we're going to survive. And as we allow suffering to produce something beautiful in us, we can arrive at the place where Asaph arrived, where we're able to say that in the midst of and in the light of our suffering, whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. My flesh and my heart will fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And now we get to give this God praise. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that as we come to sing, as we come to the table, as we come to uh, uh, experience, Lord, uh, in, 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 in a physical way, as we remember right now together as your people, as we remember the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus as we take communion together, as we observe the Lord's table together, as we give thanksgiving to you together, Lord, do a special work in us. Help us to prepare well for suffering. And for those who are right now in the midst of their furnace of affliction, may, may we be a gang of folk who will come around and love and support and, 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 and extend your love to them physically today. Lord, we, we need you. This is supernatural. We cannot, we cannot sing in our suffering naturally. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would do a special work here today. We need you, Jesus. May you be more beautiful than health. May you be more beautiful than wealth. May you be more beautiful 
than all the good things that you've given us. And may all these good things point to you, we pray. And it's in your name. And the church said? And the church said? Amen. Amen.